Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, June 13th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. The mention of string theory probably makes most of us feel nervous. After all, if proven true, string theory will explain the very makings of our universe. But Carol Armitage, a renowned New York-based choreographer, isn't known to turn down a challenge. In her latest work in progress, Armitage is tackling theoretical physics and quantum mechanics in the form of dance. To help her, Armitage recruited composer and percussionist Lucas Ligeti and two of the world's leading theoretical physicists, Jim Gates and Brian Greene. Together, they debuted the first stage of the Elegant Universe Ballet at this year's 2008 World Science Festival. As part of the Guggenheim Museum's Works and Progress series, audience members got a sneak peek of a fusion project's very beginnings. In this week's podcast, get your sneak peek too. And when you're finished listening, log on to the podcast page of scienceandthecity.org for a multimedia slideshow of Jim Gates's Adinkras project, a project showing how complex mathematics can look when it's turned into a picture. For more information about the World Science Festival, log on to scienceandthecity.org. I'm Carol Armitage, and I am a choreographer. I read Brian Greene's book, The Elegant Universe, and just the simple idea that there were these two pillars of physics that had reigned supreme for 50 years that actually had a fundamental contradiction. And actually the math and all of the physics ideas kind of went by the wayside when you put them together intrigued me so much. And then there's this incredibly romantic new upstart framework called string theory. And I think I was really attracted to that romance of this idea of the celestial vibrating universe that is made in the fundamental particles are strings and everything is tuned to frequencies. And that's what, you know, the fundamental matter is, is held together by that. I had this crazy notion that this should become a dance piece. And I met Brian Greene by chance at a mutual friend's house, and he spoke at a dinner. He gave a two-minute resume of what string theory was. It was so brilliant and unbelievably concise. (laughs) So meeting him really also helped to inspire it, because I thought, well, you know, if I can really collaborate with someone, that makes it interesting, because I didn't really want to do just a pure dance piece without a scientist involved. And then it's like, okay, but what music can you, you know, that, that... is going to have the same kind of forces of symmetry and ideas about geometry and that's got real depth to it but is really new. I mean it was you know it was like that complex search for the right image. And I found Lucas. I am Lucas Ligeti, and I'm a composer. I think ideas came first, but then concretely I gave Carol music and she choreographed it. But it's really right now, we're at the very beginning of of trying to figure this piece out. And 
for me, it's often like this that I have to start working on something and also generate some first results in order to really know what I want to do. And I'm getting a little closer to it now. I don't know how much of this initial piece that we're presenting today will even survive into the final version. Well, I play a pretty strange instrument. I play an electronic marimba, and it looks a lot like a table, but on the tabletop are drawings, one could say. I have different fields that I'm drumming on, if you want. Actually, what happens is that each one of these fields has a small coil built in, and my mallets also have coils, and between the, the coils, a magnetic field gets built up, and so my instrument actually recognizes I have four different mallets, which mallet is hitting it, because the magnetic fields are different, so I can program it differently according, for example, to which mallet I'm hitting it, but that's one of, only of many parameters and possibilities that I have. The sounds don't come from that instrument, actually. This instrument belongs to the family of instruments called MIDI controllers. MIDI is a, basically a language of an industry standard language for electronic musical instruments to communicate with each other and with computers. And the sounds are in my laptop, but then instead of just playing the keyboard of my laptop, I use this electronic marimba to trigger different things that are in my laptop. Sounds, or changes in sound, or changes in program. You know, various, there's all kinds of things I can tell the computer to do. So I'm trying to stay in control of this <laughs> strange instrument, and at the same time queuing off some of what the dancers are doing. I'm actually an improviser, and so I'm not used to playing music. I write music that always gets played the same way by other people, but I myself am not used to playing things the same way twice. In fact, as an improviser, one of the major challenges is trying not to play things the same way twice, trying not to repeat oneself. I'm trying to find a compromise between keeping up variation between different times I play and also playing in a way that's intelligible to the dancers and relates to the, to the choreography. And that sometimes a difficult compromise to strike. It's always a matter of knowing what are the relevant moments, what are the things to listen for, what are the things to watch for. I think whatever you're doing, whether you're playing music or dancing, there are certain things that are more relevant and there are certain things that are less relevant, and you try to concentrate on the relevant things and use those as your anchors. Good evening, and welcome to Works in Process at the Guggenheim. And tonight we're very pleased and honored that we are allowed to be part of the World Science Festival. And I'd like to thank Professor Jim Gates and, of course, choreographer Carol Armitage and composer Lucas Ligeti, all of whom are going to bring us a fascinating evening. My name is Jim Gates. I'm a professor of physics at the University of Maryland and fortunate enough to hold the John Toll professorship. I also direct the Center for String and Particle Theory. A number of people know that I have fairly broad interests in and out of science. So when the invitation came to provide narration to the ballet, I thought, well, gee, that's a challenge. We're going to begin with a fairly long excerpt of a new piece of mine that's called Connoisseurs of Chaos. Before we get to I'd like the... to see her do that. That was my first thought. I had no idea how she would approach it. I think that she was very effective. Because you see uh, two of the media that I'm used to using, namely mathematics and then computer animations of the mathematics, how these two are interrelated. 
Carol has actually done a rather similar process, which became very clear to me when I talked to her a couple of hours before the performance, because she started talking about physics in a way that was quite shocking to hear from someone trained in dance, with a facility and with a fidelity that was quite unusual. So it was clear to me she had done her homework. And if you do your homework reading something like The Elegant Universe, which was one of her sources, then, in fact, the pictures actually get painted for you, and that's what she translated to the stage. So it's actually a continuation of this uh, continuum of media. These are kind of like little sketches of ideas. It's even just testing which ideas might be worth developing. One of the things I most loved was literally the vocabulary. The glossary of terms related to theoretical physics are so beautiful from, you know, event horizons, space-time fabric, quantum foam, you know, kalabi-yao. I mean, all these wonderful words. And then I thought, well, okay, well, let's just think about those words and which ones can I really see an image that the human body could actually in some way embody the energy of the idea or the kind of processes of the idea. I think my real favorite is probably the Kalabi Yao scene because, I don't know, it's, it's got a kind of like rock and roll visceralness that really appeals to me. It's got, you know, I, I think of the forces of the universe as, as being so extreme. So what I love about it is it's got that kind of gutsy thing, but it's also got this incredibly, this beautiful sort of vibration lightness to it, which feels to me like what string theory ought to be translated to music. And I like the fact that there's this very complex geometry of five dancers surrounding one dancer who's sort of, you know, so-called the string, so that they're all mutually influencing each other. I mean, it's just very, it's very complicated sort of way of making movement that, as far as I know, is new. It was a beautiful realization after the first 15 or 20 minutes of watching the first movement of the dance that Carol, in fact, was answering three questions. The three questions were, what is this place, what am I, and what is the relationship between the two? So what is this place has to do with space and time, and that's what relativity was actually all about. As humans, we know about space because we move through it. In fact, that's how we detect space, by being able to move. Time, on the other hand, is another sort of motion, but that motion depends on the persistence of memory because you have to be able to remember at one time things looked one way and at a later time they looked different. And then you ask how they got between these two and it's kind of a motion. This idea that time is a type of motion is over 2,000 years old. It had occurred already to the ancient Greek philosophers. For most of our species tenure on this planet as rational beings. We've had a sense of space because that's very common to move about. And then our deep thinkers, our philosophers, added to the notion that time was also a type of space. So when Einstein comes along, we've had several thousand years of people saying time and space are kind of the same. But what Einstein does is make them almost exactly the same. 
up until then, it was a hazy notion. It was sort of flaky and shaky and something that mathematically was not quite true because we had a good understanding of space and time due to the work of Isaac Newton. But Newton's work leaves time sort of out on the side. We've got space, and sort of on the side there's this thing called time that Newton had to use, but there's no obvious and direct relationship between the two. Albert Einstein then enters the picture a couple of hundred years later and says, no, time is not out on the side. It is intimately related to space, and that you can trade space and time in the way that one day I might decide to walk forward, and then maybe five minutes later walk to my side. That's what I mean by trading. I can change direction. Einstein teaches us that time is like trading and changing direction. And that's the critical part of the theory of general relativity. One thing that I find really interesting from a dance perspective just watching is, Carol, what you did with the balafone dance system. Where the dancers are standing along these lines and then they jump these fences. This is a piece where my music basically consists of several interlocked melodies because of the way they're being played, the listener is no longer really necessarily able to separate these melodies from one another, but they kind of flow together and the brain begins reprocessing and reordering these sounds into maybe different types of melodies. So there's many different ways of hearing this music and there's really no obvious beat or anything at all. That's a, that was a big challenge for the dancer. There, there are beats. There is no one beat, but you can choose and hear the beat in many different ways, and there's no one right or one, wrong way. So Carol came up with this choreography where this, the dancers are standing in, in fairly geometrically simple arrangement and then kind of doing independent things. And then they come together and then they go apart more again into individual. And that, I don't know, I think it's just a moment when music and dance correspond in a very interesting way. called Sum Over Paths, and it's about the quantum world and about how all of these little packets of quanta, these little pieces of light, go from point A to point B, but every single one of them takes their own path, so every single possible path is taken, but they arrive at the same point. I did use these very simple kind of like lines to create kind of coherent visual point of departure, and then the dancers sort of ha would have a task almost that they could do in a way that would be phasing in and out of each other, and very idiosyncratic, but still the exact material they were using would be the same. It does correspond absolutely to the way the music is you can hear it the beat differently you can hear the melodies differently and they're kind of doing the same exact idea which was yeah which is you know kind of the image that i saw as the unpredictability of how quantum mechanics works our world is not what it seems in science it's literally true what we learn from studying matter that's for me the question of what am i what we've learned by going to the realm of the very small is that the rules are different. It's not like going to a baseball game. It's not like walking around in the world around us. The rules are different. And mathematically, we have a rather precise way of expressing that. One of the most interesting things about that mathematical expression of the rules is that it looks like the mathematics for waves. And that's why we call it wave mechanics, because the mathematics looks like the mathematics we see in the waves in the world around us. So the world of quantum mechanics really is a, a place where none of our common sense everyday experience applies.
some of the ideas are really complicated to explain and we would need more time to actually get into them. But the black hole is an easy one because at the edge of the event horizon, the area surrounding a black hole, it is known somehow <laughs> that time slows way, way, way down. So I had the dancers moving incredibly slowly to show that idea to a very steady beat that the musicians were playing. And then I had them move way close to the audience and then they were going eight times faster, literally. That one was really like truly an exercise in showing literally the idea of how this kind of time works. Obviously, near a black hole, it's slowed down so much more extreme than the human body could actually move. Imagine that you're on a river that is flowing gently down the side of a hill. So someone stands on the shore and watches you, and you, you, know, you simply go down at the same rate. You don't speed up or slow down. As long as the slope on the hill is the same, you'll just be slowly going down. Now, let's suppose that you change the slope of the hill. Then what's going to happen with what you're doing? It's like coming to rapids on a mountain. Suddenly you'll speed up and be going faster and faster. And now let's go to the bottom of the hill where you're on flat ground. The river will slowly flow along. What this example shows is that at least flowing in a river, the speed at which you move depends on the slant that you're sitting at. But what Einstein teaches us is that time actually works the same way, which is quite remarkable, that the ordinary flow of time, which we experience sort of in our everyday life, that's like being on that flat river plane that I was telling you about. On the other hand, if you get close to a very massive body like a black hole, what happens is instead of having, let's say you have the plane at a slight tilt, you make it more and more flat. For the river, Making the tilt more and more flat slows the river down. As you get closer and closer to a massive body, the rate of time slows down, and that's what she was trying to capture with time dilation. Einstein, of course, spent the last 30 years of his life trying to make this reconciliation between his theory of gravitation, on the one hand, which he invented, and all the other things in our universe, because clearly there's more than gravity in our universe. So this final unification between the answering the question, what am I and what is this place? Well, string theory is the only piece of mathematics I know that's capable of doing this. And in its four-dimensional versions, with I, which I spoke of earlier, what it tells us is a very wonderful story. It tells us that just as we are related to stars, with the ideas of string theory, we come to understand that we're actually related to space and time. That in some sense, they're our relatives, they're our cousins. Before string theory, if you look at the equations of mathematical physics and think of them as the um, stage in a great theater, what you would find is plans for this marvelous stage, perhaps the most beautiful stage, ornate carvings on the wall, beautifully lit, a gleaming floor, but the stage would be empty. Because you see, before string theory comes along, if you look at the equations of Einstein, they describe the stage, a bare stage. What string theory does in its four-dimensional formulation says, if you've got this beautiful stage, there have to be actors upon it. And we're those actors, our quarks, leptons, the things that make us up. They're intrinsically part of string theory. 
before string theory, we are an afterthought. That is, you could imagine a universe where there's only space and time and nothing else. With string theory, that's impossible. If you have space and time, you must have things like us running around. This is the most profound connection to the universe I have ever heard of. Quantum being the arena of unpredictability and happenstance and all of those things, it's very interesting to incorporate that into art. For me, many accidents lead to much of the choreography that I find the most interesting. A dancer didn't quite understand what I asked them to do, or they fall, or somebody pushes harder than they expected, and it, it creates a whole new trajectory and interesting movement, and that often has an emotional content that is of interest also. People want to know about the world around them. I th there is curiosity about the universe. I mean, I think the crazy thing is that here we are with the body. You know, Lucas has electronics. He has computers. He has all kinds of things that he can use that are not just this anachronistic, simplistic thing that I'm using, which is we have two arms, two legs, a head. We can only go as fast as we can go. We're trying to bring forth the energy and the concepts of these things that are so radical and so far from what the human body can do. We can do things through image that really ask the audience to join us with their imagination. And it's really about the dialogue of our mutual imaginations coming together. thought of this week's podcast and other Science in the City podcasts. Email your feedback to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654 or send your comments snail mail care of Science in the City, 7 World Trade Center, 250 Greenwich Street, 40th Floor, New York, New York, 10007. For more information on science and culture in New York City, log on to scienceandthecity.org. See you next week. Music